Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Farm Manipulation. I am your host, Caroline Rango, the project manager at FarmDAO at Georgetown University Medical Center, and I am here today with my co-host, Dr. Adrian Fuberman, the director of FarmDAO. Hi there. Today, we're going to be taking a look at attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, commonly known as ADHD. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in the United States alone, 6 million children have ADHD. That is 1 in 10 children between the ages of 3 and 17. So today, we're going to dive a bit deeper into the topics of diagnosing and treating ADHD. So psychiatric diseases are really excellent candidates for expanding diagnoses because every psychiatric diagnosis is subjective. ADHD has been around since 1980. I think it started with DSM-3. Right. And I am so glad that we will be able to talk more about this with our guests today, Dr. Gretchen Lefevre Watson and Robert Whitaker. Dr. Lefevre Watson is a licensed clinical psychologist. She completed her postdoctoral training in pediatric psychology. She is the author of Your Patient Safety Survival Guide, and she's written many academic articles on ADHD in children. Her research has garnered international attention. Robert Whitaker is a renowned journalist, author of Made in America, co-author of Psychiatry Under the Influence with Dr. Lisa Colesgrove. He has authored the award-winning Anatomy of an Epidemic. He is also the publisher of Med in America. He has written extensively on the pharmaceutical industry's influence on psychiatry. And at this time, I would like to welcome Dr. Lefeva Watson and Bob Whitaker to Farm Manipulation. Thank you both so very much for coming on today. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to be here, and thank you for this opportunity. On the diagnosis side of things, um, ADHD seems like a good candidate um, for a disorder that can be overdiagnosed. Um, it has uh, one of the hallmarks for expanding uh, the patient population, that is a squidgy uh, diagnostic criteria. Would you say that's correct? Absolutely. It's just so easy to interpret behaviors according to a symptom checklist. And the behaviors are behaviors that exist in everybody at some time and to varying degrees. So yeah, it's really subjective diagnosis. And, and I would just like to add one thing here on this question of diagnosis and whether it's overdiagnosis, because when we use the word overdiagnosis, that sort of gives credibility that there's this thing, this discrete disorder called ADHD. And of course, when you really look at it, ADHD is diagnosed by, you know, behaviors. Do they occur frequently, often, a little bit more than often? And you can, and once you, and you just have these symptom checklists, these behavior checklists, and you can arbitrarily decide, well, are we going to say it's in the 3% of children at the far end of that spectrum on these uh, scores? Or are we going to say 5% or 10%? And when it was first introduced in 1980, the idea was that maybe 2% of children had it, 3% of children had ADHD. Then with DSM-4, they made it easier to diagnose ADHD. And next thing you know, we heard 5 to 10%. And actually, DSM-5 further made it possible to diagnose it. So as a society, we, we talk about this as there's this discrete illness called ADHD. Either you have it or you don't have it. But if you look into it, it's, it's clearly a description of behaviors that fall along a spectrum. And even though the grading of the behaviors is subjective, and you can set the line where you're going to say 
kids have ADHD or don't have ADHD basically wherever you want to. So I understand ADHD is diagnosed on certain behaviors, inattention, impulsivity, hyperactivity, and that it's being diagnosed in preschoolers. Can it really be reliably diagnosed in preschoolers? I mean, isn't it normal for kids to talk a lot when they've just learned how to talk? Uh, Isn't it in a three-year-old's job description to be interested in the world and thus easily distracted? Well, I think diagnosing ADHD in preschoolers is insane. I, I mean, I, 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 there's no other word for it. I mean, you look at um, the, the, the symptoms for three-year-olds, it's like talks excessively, doesn't pay attention enough to his sustained mental activity. I mean, it, I don't know what three-year-old they're talking about. And, and it, so it really is like the, there's lots of reasons to question the whole ADHD story, okay? But when we start diagnosing two-year-olds and three-year-olds because they talk excessively or they don't show sustained mental attention like solving puzzles or something, you know that's a medical discipline that's lost its way and really lost its mind a bit. And remember that diagnosis leads to treatment, So next thing you know, we're going to be giving stimulants to a two-year-old or three-year-old whose brain, of course, is just soaking up the environment and responding to the environment as it, you know, creates synapses and stuff. You're going to interrupt that. I really think when we talk about diagnosing ADHD in preschoolers and saying it's justified to give stimulants, you are now in an area of medicine that has just lost its way. It's just crazy. That's my feeling. I couldn't agree more. You know, it was in 2000 that I was asked to give a lecture to a parenting center, a new parenting center that was attached to a prestigious preschool daycare kind of setting. And the request was to talk about ADHD in the infant and preschooler. And I refused to give the talk. I said, there's no way I'll give that talk. And so finally, I agreed to talk on ADHD in the very young child. When I showed up, it was standing room only of parents from our community who had children between one and three years of age for whom they were concerned about ADHD or the children had already been diagnosed with ADHD. And we knew from our work in the community conducting epidemiologic surveys, in fact, they were already by 2000 medicating preschoolers for ADHD. That is really scary. Really, how does a child as young as two um, end up with an ADHD diagnosis? Well, I think usually when it's a young child, they're not fitting into an environment like daycare. They might be getting kicked out of daycare or the parents are simply overwhelmed. And then when they get older, it tends to be that they're having trouble with academics or it may be that they don't want to sit still in class for a long period of time. Or it can also be that the parents really want to see the child excel and they're afraid that the child isn't meeting his or her capabilities. We certainly saw that in an interesting way where um, a long time ago we documented that in a very affluent school district, the children who were young for their grade, so the youngest kids in the class, were 21 times more likely than their peers to be diagnosed with ADHD. And these were very young children. And that meant of among the children who were young for the grade, 63% of them were medicated. 
at least 63%, because that's the percent that was receiving a dose of ADHD medication from a school nurse during the middle of the day. So it was probably higher than that. So you can see that it's a very subjective diagnosis, and there are really many roads lead to Rome, many roads lead to an ADHD diagnosis. I just want to add in research circles, they've set up these uh, evaluation scorecards like SNAP and other things where they'll ask questions. Uh, for example, I think SNAP has 18 questions, nine related to the attention domain, nine related to the hyperactive impulsive domain. And they'll ask a question like, is on the go all the time? Seems like the person's on the go and you write either zero, not at all. One point is just a little, two is quite a bit, three is very much. So what, what is being done here is you're taking a subjective impression and quantifying it makes it makes it seem objective. It's just a decision about you have a spectrum of scores on this subjective questionnaire. And by the way, is, is, is on the go a bad thing? Is talking too much necessarily a bad thing? <laughs> has difficulty organizing tasks. I mean, these two are like, you know, you're making a value judgment about behaviors or takes too much risk is another thing, is a problem. Well, is that really a problem? Maybe taking risks is a good thing. So the diet, there's two parts to this diagnosis. There's this sort of research diagnosis using rating scales. And you look at the rating scales and it's hard not to think these are sort of idiotic in terms of, trying to pretend there's a precise number between ADHD and non-ADHD. And then I think it's how it works in the real world, which is basically you get some complaint, they go to a doctor and say, okay, here's a stimulant. Yeah, I, to that point, Bob, sometimes it is just exactly like you say, they have a complaint, they use a checklist and they get the diagnosis and stimulant. I also run into a lot of parents who think, oh, well, I did a good job. I didn't just do the checklist with my child's doctor. I went and got the child's psychological testing. And what I say is, what in that testing revealed that the child had ADHD? And they're kind of flummoxed because there is no test to this day for ADHD. So you can spend a lot of money on a battery to get your child tested. And that doesn't mean that there's really any magic in there to discern who does and doesn't have ADHD with much more reliability than the checklist. A colleague of mine who's a psychiatrist um, who's skeptical of many ADHD diagnoses says that he asks um, he, he asks patients who come to him convinced that they have ADHD and um, generally equipped with the answers <laughs> to questions that they know that they will be asked um, in order to obtain the diagnosis. And he asked them, um, do you play video games? Um, do you have any trouble concentrating on the games? And when they say no, he says, you don't have ADHD. <laughs> but well, you that's know, they, true. But for a while they were saying, oh, well, that's just a sign of hyperfocus, which can also happen in children <laughs> with ADHD. There's no, there's no escape. That's really interesting um, that you brought up um, the, the parents being involved in the testing, because I was going to ask, you know, if we're talking about diagnosing three-year-olds, two-year-olds, are you giving this questionnaire to the kids? Like who is involved? So there is the parents or are the, are the teachers also involved in some of this testing as well? Absolutely. Uh, teachers, daycare providers are routinely asked to complete a checklist of the child's behavior in their setting. But can I say the ADHD rating scale for preschool asks the same stupid questions? 
it's like 18 questions and it's like he's on the go too much. Talks excessively. Has difficulty organizing tasks. I have difficulty organizing right. tasks. Right. <laughs> you know, and exactly. The, yeah. The other thing is when we look at the results of these scales given to parents and teachers, more often than not, they don't agree. You don't get consistency between how the parent and teacher is rating the child, which just speaks to Bob's earlier point that it's so environmentally related. It, it's so subjective. And the concept of using uh, these checklists or tests to diagnose someone is a common practice of uh, that pharmaceutical companies use often um, through a consumer advocacy group or um, or through through a medical society. But taking what are essentially very subjective diagnoses and making them seem that they're objective seems like a common tactic. Yeah. Well, I think the history of the Connors rating scale is interesting. That's one of the most commonly used ADHD checklists. Uh, Keith Connors was doing research, I think it was in the 70s, on the effect of stimulants on child child behavior, and he was approached by the pharmaceutical industry to turn that research tool into a diagnostic tool. The rest is kind of history. So ADHD drugs are generally amphetamines, and with all of the problems that amphetamines have, they can cause uh, tachycardia or increased heartbeat, they can cause um, hypertension, they can cause insomnia, and symptoms that are um, that go with uh, diagnoses of bipolar disorder or mania or other psychiatric diagnoses as well. Can you talk some about the adverse effects of pharmaceutical treatments used for ADHD symptoms? Well, there, there's many. <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the most severe, of course, is that uh, stimulants can stir psychosis or mania. And you saw with the introduction of stimulants and the medicating of youth for ADHD, a certain percentage then would have a manic or a psychotic episode and be diagnosed with juvenile bipolar disorder. So I don't think it's any accident that we started using stimulants. And the next thing you know, we were getting all these kids saying they have bipolar symptoms because that was a new diagnosis in the 90s for children. But you get things like appetite loss, prone to crying, skin picking, trouble sleeping, increased anxiety, um, greater risk of depression, stomach aches, social withdrawal, listlessness, tiredness, can't feel joy. So there's both a wide variety of physical symptoms and like insomnia, maybe some mania. And, and think about this. If you have a stimulant, you're going to start going up and down during the day, right? Because you can't sleep. Then all of a sudden you, you you have this up and down mood thing going on during the day. But there's physical symptoms, there's emotional symptoms, there's withdrawal symptoms when you try to come off. And the biggest unknown is what are you doing to the brain and how does that affect the long-term course of that individual, even physio physiologically? Mm, I see. Dr. Fuberman mentioned earlier how ADHD has been around since the 1980s, starting with the DSM-3. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, where the shift started? Were kids being diagnosed back then in the 80s, young as two, or has there been a shift throughout the years, and what has that looked like? Yes, so ADHD was first diagnosed primarily in school-age children, 
And then we began expanding the diagnosis down into children of younger, younger ages, as well as children of older ages, and then young adults in school, and now adults of all ages. So we've moved the diagnosis from one being primarily focused on school-age children, particularly in the elementary grades, to up and down the age spectrum. And, and there's two things to understand here. <laughs> A lot of this diagnostic expansion has, has been promoted by physicians, psychiatrists, who do receive money from pharmaceutical companies. And so, for example, if you look on DSM-4, uh, you know, a number of the people who are on the panels for expanding the diagnosis were, quote, acting as key opinion leaders for pharmaceutical companies. And what Gretchen just said, of course, pharmaceutical companies they may introduce something into a targeted audience, and then very quickly, they want to expand the audience. And so what did you see with ADHD? First, it was for kids in school, and generally, I think, before age seven or something. But then you get it into younger groups and to older groups, and that, and that way you create a huge market. So this is sort of a classic uh, marketing story where you have money flowing from pharmaceutical companies to those who are making the diagnostic categories, talking about developing scales for, for diagnosing it. So there's very much a, uh, a, money, a money flow behind this whole story. Thank you uh, for bringing that perspective, um, Bob. So a follow-up question to that um, is children and adults with attention deficit hyperactive disorder um, is an CHAD, as it's commonly known, um, is an organization that is funded by pharmaceutical industry. Their website uh, states that hundreds of thousands of dollars were donated by pharmaceutical companies um, in 2021. Um, what has been the role of CHAD or other patient ad advocacies? I know you mentioned physicians, um, but has uh, patient advocacy groups played a role? Absolutely. CHAD has played a very significant role in advancing the diagnosis and treatment of ADHD. You know, first, again, it was focused on school-age children, but we had a really interesting experience here in the community um, around 2012 or 13. Now, the local CHAD chapter was showing up on college campuses and showing a movie that said ADD and loving it. And they were making ADHD look like a really attractive diagnosis to college students. So if they hadn't already been caught in the net of ADHD by the time they got to college, this was yet one more opportunity for them to do so. And I understand a quarter of college students report using stimulants as study drugs. Is there any evidence that these stimulants improve learning, retention, or academic performance? Absolutely not. You know, we have decades of research showing that stimulants do not improve long-term or meaningful educational outcomes. So they might improve your concentration for a short while on very repetitive tasks or help you to stay up late at night to cram, but they do not improve long-term educational outcomes. And in fact, there's some research that suggests it can actually interfere with creative thinking and higher order thinking. Now, here in the United States, and this is, you know, we talk about evidence-based medicine. And one of the ideas with evidence-based medicine is you have good research outcomes showing that on the whole, the benefits are outweigh the risks of any treatment. So we began uh, diagnosing and medicating kids after 1980, DSM-3. Then in the early 1990s, uh, the National Institute of Mental Health 
mounted the first, what it said, good clinical trial of a pediatric disorder in psychiatry. It was called the MTA study of ADHD. Now, when they mounted that study, they said, we have no evidence that stimulants improve functioning on any domain over the long term. We, we can steal kids' movements and maybe we can make them talk less, but we really have no evidence that we're helping kids in the long term. Now, what happened in that study? And this study is sometimes still cited as the most critical evidence regarding the, evidence, the, the merits of stimulants. But what happened at the end of three years? Being on drug was a marker of deterioration, not a benefit. And by the way, this was so surprising, the researchers said, oh, could it be that it was those with more severe symptoms that stayed on the medication? They said that wasn't it. They couldn't find any explanation for that worsening. At the end of six years, uh, being on medication was associated with worsened functional, worse delinquency, worse ADHD symptoms, and some functional impairments. So they were no benefits. And for example, William Pelham, he, he was one of the psychologists that was on this study. He said, he said, we had thought that children medicated longer would have better outcomes. That didn't happen to be the case. There were no beneficial effects, none. In the short term, medication will help the child behave better. In the long run, it won't. And that information should be made uh, very clear to parents. Of course, it's not. Now, since that MTA study was done, they've actually done it out to 20 years, found no benefits, uh, sort of there was a reduction of height and some other things. There was a study done in Australia, medication led to worse outcomes in school, a study done in Quebec, worse outcomes in school and worse peer relationships, worse parental relationships. So this is looking on the benefit side of the equation. And if you don't have any benefit, long-term benefit, now you have to chalk, chalk up the risks. And the risks with long-term use of stimulants are, are profound. So if you see sometimes like critics or people get upset about this whole story, it's really two part. One is what is the diagnosis? But then even if the diagnosis is validated, you still have to say, does this treatment help children grow up and thrive? And if it doesn't, why isn't that evidence known to the public? And that's, in my opinion, one of the big betrayals here is we have this long-term data. It just isn't made known to parents and the public. Right. I think one of those really nice things about the Quebec study that Bob mentioned is that was a naturalistic experience uh, experiment. Canada was collecting data on children every two years for a long period of time. It was a national study, and so they they were collecting information from school records, from um, self assessments, parent assessments, teacher assessments. And then healthcare coverage changed in the in Quebec, but not in the other provinces in Canada. And when they saw this change in healthcare benefits that allowed Ritalin treatment to be covered more readily, there was a sharp increase in the number of children being diagnosed and medicated for ADHD. So what they were able to do was look at children in Quebec and elsewhere in Canada over many years and see the very clear deterioration in functioning across all the domains they assessed. The longer the children were on the medication, the worse they functioned in terms of academics, 
um, family relations and social emotional functioning. It was just, to me, a very compelling complement to what we were learning from randomized control trials. Yeah, long-term effects seems like that's a, a really important thing to think about, especially since we're giving this to children and adolescents whose brains are still developing. The human brain doesn't completely mature until about age 24, where we may well be interfering with that process. Yeah, I mean, we're really taking lots of preschoolers now and medicating them for ADHD and trying to control their behavior through drugs before they've had a chance developmentally to even gain control, before they've even tried to, um, before they've even reached the level of maturity where we would expect that, with no idea of how that might interfere with their normal functioning. So for example, the MTA study was with everyone was diagnosed and then they're randomized into, that was the NIMH study, into four groups. And the, as Gretchen said, the Quebec study was sort of a naturalistic study, uh, that sort of thing. This, these new stories, studies are very interesting. One, I think, is coming from Australia, and I'm not sure where the other one came from, I, Ireland. What they had is a group of children who, at some point, uh, were seen as having ADHD symptoms, okay? They, they met the criteria. But one group actually was diagnosed and entered the system. The other group was not diagnosed, even though they had the symptoms that would have allowed for a diagnosis. They just didn't enter the medical system for that treatment. And what they found was those children who were diagnosed and therefore entered the system of treatment actually had worse long-term outcomes on academic achievement, emotional things, that sort of thing. So this was presented by Sammy Tamimi, Tamimi at this conference, who's a child psychiatrist. And his point is, maybe even the labeling of children with ADHD is, is, is harmful. It's not just the drugs. But maybe once you give people children this identity that there's something wrong with them, that in itself and, uh, you know, that identity spreads to other children and to parents. So that child has ADHD. Maybe that is a harmful thing to do. That the diagnosis itself can be a harm. Certainly, uh, I'm thinking of a colleague of mine who uh, said to me uh, once, you know, when I was a kid, I, I, I realized um, I realized that if this ADHD diagnosis had been around when I was a kid, I would have been diagnosed with it. I just couldn't keep still in the classroom. But I had a really creative teacher who was just always sending me out on errands, you know, sending me outside to clap the erasers, sending me to the principal's office to deliver a note. But she she just knew that I couldn't keep still. And she, she um, gave me little tasks to do, and that enabled me to be able to focus in the classroom. And he said, I'm sure I would have any kid with those kinds of symptoms today would be diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah, it's really like teachers have been taught to try to spot children who are different so that they can get labeled and treated instead of trying to spot what the child's personality is or how to best help them fit into the classroom and picking up on their unique gifts or uh, traits. So their teachers are now spotters for the mental health system. I think there's another important sort of conceptual thing going on, which you've raised here, Adrian. When we talk about a child not adapting well to the school environment, we now blame it on the child. 
we say, oh, the child has something wrong with them inside. Maybe the school environment's not so good and you could change school environments and see these, these sort of disruptive presence of kids diminish. And there is plenty of evidence that that happens. There's a man named Howard Glasser who's adopt, uh, created this approach for schools called the Nurtured Heart Approach. And what's great about this is he's brought it into different school districts. They've done research. And as they change the classroom and teach, and basically sort of what you were speaking about, the teacher finding another way to deal with someone who couldn't sit still, they find then when they come in and help change the classroom, and part of which making it so there's a more curious environment present. It's not just teaching, it's sparking that kid's curiosity. ADHD diminishes, goes way down. So you can see that if you change the school environment and make a school a more enticing, curious place, let kids run around, because who, what kid is really set up to sit in a chair for six hours a day, that ADHD is, you know, it'll dissipate. So we can see by that, those experiments that ADHD is situational. In other words, kids often don't pay attention in certain situations. And I think Gretchen has experience where they also worked with classrooms and found ADHD diminished. Maybe you can talk about that, Gretchen. Yeah, it was really interesting. We implemented a school-wide teacher training program. And what we saw before the year was over, we saw a 70% decrease in discipline referrals. But the teachers who adopted the program that we were teaching them had students who exhibited a decrease in ADHD behaviors from the beginning of the school year to the end of the school year versus the other teachers had classrooms where ADHD behaviors or symptoms, however you want to look at it, increased over time. And then the other really interesting unexpected finding was that without doing anything to manipulate the curriculum that teachers were using academically, the teachers who embraced this more positive approach to classroom management had students who scored significantly higher on every academic subject area assessed by the standard uh, state standard tests, what we call the SOLs. So it's just really remarkable how much of a difference, the teacher's presence in the classroom and understanding of how to use certain strategies to um, invite children into the learning environment instead of um, correcting or overusing negative feedback and discipline could make a huge difference. So what kinds of things were you teaching them or what were some strat what what was what were some strategies? We focused a lot on positive reinforcement, catching kids being good, and really helping teachers to shift their focus. I mean, we're naturally set up to notice the behavior that's different from what we want or standing out as problematic. And we really coached them up. And it was not easy to see and spot and reinforce what they wanted to see in the classroom. And we did teach them some um corrective strategies as well, like use of timeout. And what we found was 95% of the teachers already used timeout, but 96% of them used it ineffectively. So we didn't teach the timeout until they really got the hang of the positive reinforcement. And then we literally went around to every teacher's classroom and, and explained how his or her use of timeout was actually not 
appropriate and it wouldn't be expected to get a positive effective result. You know, a lot of behavioral interventions can seem really simple, but they're also easy to implement incorrectly and then not get the results. So both parents and teachers, you'll hear often say, oh, I've already tried that and it doesn't work. But it might be that they didn't really implement it with fidelity. Can I give an example of a really novel approach to changing the classroom? There's a, a Alzheimer's doctor named Peter Whitehouse. I think you know him, right, Adrian? Yeah, we've 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 interviewed him. Okay, so you know him. He's a real, you know, thinks outside the box. But he worked with a program. I think it was in Cleveland, where what they did is they brought Alzheimer patients into the classroom to read to read to the kids, and the presence of these elderly, solar vulnerable people the kids started to become protective, at least as I understand it, of the elderly people. And that, that changed the atmosphere of the classroom. At least that's what I heard from Peter. But and you, it makes sense, right? Kids are very sensitive and if they see sort of grandmotherly or grandfatherly types, they want to take care of them. And what I love about that anecdote is it shows the kids are responsive to their environment. They don't just exist individually being difficult. It's what environment are they in? And if we have 10% of our kids diagnosed, or by the way, what percentage of kids arriving at college now arrive with a diagnosis and a prescription, that tells us that we as a society aren't doing things so great, in my opinion, that we need to change environments and how, you know school environments and so forth. Yes, I was thinking of a, a, a friend of mine who's a special ed teacher who uh, said to me, special ed's just an excuse for creative teaching. Really, every kid should have access to that kind of education. Yeah, it's interesting. There's some research that suggests the most effective special education strategy is simply repetition, that you give children more time. Sometimes that's been the more robust intervention, more robust than any other special education intervention. Do you have any thoughts um, on the emergence of online prescribing uh, practices of ADHD medications that we're now seeing? I think a lot of teens, even if you ask nowadays, there's a lot on social media of um, these sorts of um, uh, places being marketed um, to younger audiences for um, prescribing medications. Well, so we know that teens are seeking um, the medications for inappropriate reasons through that um venue, but there's also uh, supposedly evidence that some of the online companies were also promoting the diagnosis and use of the prescription because it was creating patients. Yeah, you know, my own opinion is when you talk about online prescribing of, of stimulants, you're just legitimizing drug dealing. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I remember when I was and my kids were growing up and one day I went to the pediatrician's office and they had a sign that sort of said this, if you take stimulants without a prescription, they're harmful and that's illegal. But if you take stimulants after you have a diagnosis, that's when it's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really hard to like, as a parent to keep those two in balance. But listen, and, and I think Adrian, or, you mentioned earlier that it's like college students and high school students learn how to game the system to get stimulants, right? They know what answers to give. So basically, you can go on one of these things, give the right answers, and next thing you know, you have a prescription for stimulant. That's just systematized drug dealing, in my opinion. <laughs> well said, Bob. You, you will also hear 
about research that shows that it's uh, uh, there are brain abnormalities or genetic abnormalities that show that ADHD is a real disease and it's it's a brain abnormality. When you look into the, that research, it doesn't show that at all. So there have been studies that have attempted to document differences in the brains of people with ADHD and people without ADHD, but the deficiencies in these studies make them entirely unreliable. Yeah, inapplicable. They're not really showing anything yeah. about individuals with ADHD, and that's why you can't use it to diagnose it. Thank you so very much, Dr. Lefeva Watson and Bob Whitaker, for joining us today. This was such a stimulating conversation, if I may say. Um, and to to end um, this uh, wonderful conversation we've had, um, I want to ask both of you, um, can each of you just give um, a, a short summary, if you will, or one thing that you'd want um, the audience to take away uh, from what we've talked about today. Is there anything that you know you would want people to take away from the conversation, essentially? Sure. I think one thing that for parents to think about is that long-term evidence is very clear that there's no benefit to the diagnosis or to the treatment. And in fact, it can convey considerable harm. So when somebody raises that issue that your child might have ADHD or you think your child might have ADHD, it's really a good time to take a pause and look for other explanations of the behavior in question. It might even be a positive attribute of your child. If it's not, it's probably still something that can be very much adapted and dealt with from an environmental perspective. And for me, I think what's important for our society to think about is the ADHD story, which was born in 1980, has kicked off a pathologizing of childhood. You know, we get ADHD, then we get juvenile bipolar, more depression than used to be. So it's really a story about pathologizing childhood as they grow up. And, you know, childhood, when you're a child, well, you still have these problems when you're an adult, but, you know, it's difficult growing up. You don't always behave well. You're always not happy with your environment. But we've now pathologized that. You see when kids come to college campuses, such a high percentage, A, have a prescription, have a diagnosis. But more than that, they've now, they're sort of attuned to looking for flaws in themselves in what way they're abnormal. So we've really raise children now in an environment which is ahistorical. There's no other society that historically pathologized its kids as its children this way. So I think our society needs to take a look at ADHD and these other things and saying, are we serving our children well when we diagnose 25% or whatever it is with a, a mental disorder and treat them for it? And that's a very profound question for a society to ask itself. Thank you so very much. Thank you both um, for those words. Um, and again, thank you for joining us today. Um, and um, in the post, we'll make sure to link to a lot of the studies that we talked about today. Uh, we'll be sure to link to uh, Bob Whitaker's website and Dr. Lefeva Watson's website as well um, in the show notes. So be sure to check those out. This has been an episode of Fun Manipulation. Farm Manipulation is a production by Farmed Out, a rational prescribing project at Georgetown University Medical Center. Music for Farm Manipulation was created and produced by Brandon Yoshi Myers. Thank you to Sahana Chakravarti for helping with research and preparation for this episode. 
Today's episode was edited by Nicodemus Fikru. Special thanks to Kaiser Permanente and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation for supporting this project. For more information about this episode and to access additional resources, please visit www.farmedout.org. That's www.phamedout.org. Thanks for listening.